This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. The Slate Audio Book Club is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. Welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of Bleeding Edge by Thomas Pynchon. I'm Dan Coyce, editor of the Slate Book Review, and I am here in Slate's New York recording studio. Joining us from D.C. is X co-founder Hannah Rosen. Hello, Hannah. Hi. And with me here in New York is our special guest for this podcast, Browbeat's own Forrest Wickman. Hello, Forrest. Hello. So we, as always in the audiobook club, we recommend that you listen to us after you read the book, unless you love being spoiled for plot details, in which case, fine, listen. I mean, we want you to listen whenever. It doesn't actually matter to us. Not that any of us will be able to understand the plot of this book. Right. And as much as there are plot details that we understand well enough to spoil, we will be maybe incorrectly or <laughs> right. inaccurately spoiling plot details. Not that Pynchon cares about the plot, but right, we'll right. save that for later. Yeah. Right. Um, so usually in these discussions, I try to start off with like some kind of you know interesting thematic question that makes me look smart and allows you guys to pick up the ball and start talking. But it seems like the easiest way to start this one is just getting this out of the way right away. Hannah, you hated this book. Oh my God, you're setting me up for like all the pinch and hate <laughs> mail straight from the start. So they can stop listening and send right. me an email. Fine. And just do it. I really don't even think that this is a novel. I think it's like an idea and you're forced to live inside this idea. And if you don't actually happen to belong to the church, then you have no idea what's going on and it's slightly boring. And frankly, like the idea driving the book about technology not being neutral and somehow connected to terror seems like juvenile and uninteresting. I am open to the idea that, you know, technology corrupts us in many, many ways. And I've read lots of novels, and we can talk about them later, which I think do a much more subtle job of it. But that seems to me like an infantile conspiracy theory idea. So that's the first problem, is the idea doesn't interest me. So I'm already starting out on the wrong foot. And then the execution, I thought, was terrible. Like, the, the writing is bad. There's no... <laughs> like interesting characters in this book. The plot, he's sort of indifferent to it. And the main character, Maxine, seems indifferent to the investigation. I have no idea.
idea why she's doing it or why she trips from one place to the other. And I get that that's supposed to be in our face. Like, you know, Pynchon does these coincidences, which couldn't possibly happen. And these names we are supposed to understand are not true. But they're not exactly funny. So I'm not really sure what's supposed to turn me on in this book. Hannah, Forrest and I just like both fell over. Yeah. Uh, We're on the ground. We're right, recording from right, the ground right. of Slate's right. New York studio. Why did you set I, me up? I'm like you let ground. me go. Like, you let me do the whole rant. You didn't even let me like peel it out so, slowly. Like. That seemed right. the most pinchiny way to launch into this, yeah, right? So now we have this entire web of complaints of yours to untangle and unthread and see what we can make out. Okay, including fine. the complaint that it is not only a bad book, but it is not in fact a book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which seems like. Which I love, and I think it's totally right in a way. I I, I get that. Right, it's like an information download, not necessarily a book. So one just relevant question maybe is is this your first pension book no then, or no. have you read a bunch okay and do, do you feel this way about all of them uh, you know it's so funny I went back and, and read them and I thought like was I just younger and like more open to conspiracy theories the crying of lot 49 like was I just more into it first of all that book is much shorter so maybe it did not <laughs> irritate me quite so much. And I think this was the laziest of them, I have to say. Like, I do think this was somewhat lazier than the rest of them. Like, I can tolerate conspiracy theory, but but this was this was just not you know, it didn't. It was it was lazy. It was long. You know, I think I think one critic wrote this and I felt exactly this way. Like it could have been 300 pages shorter or 400 pages longer. Like it just didn't really matter, like when it began and ended, you know, as she tripped through her various investigation, which she didn't seem to give a shit about. This was my first pension novel. So I was not a member of the choir. I was not, you know, a previous pension fan or aficionado or obsessive. So I really liked it. I totally enjoyed it. I thought the writing was great. Oh, oh take God, that. It's so bad. Look, can we read some of the writing, by the yeah, way? Yeah, I'm going to yeah, read okay. some, Please, of the, I can't some wait. of the fantastic <laughs> yes. writing and listen to you scoff. I loved the riffage of it, and it seemed to me that this was a book that I was just happy to live in over the course of its existence, which, as you say, could have been 300 pages less or 400 pages more, but I didn't really mind. It was like sort of functioned for me in the way that like Deep Archer functions for the people that are in it. Deep Archer in the book is this like immersive computer quote unquote game, but really just an environment of the sort that novelists always put into novels but don't actually really take off in the real world. It's sort of like Second Life, I guess. It's sort of like Second Life. I like the Deep Archer scenes, although I am no longer your friend, but I did right. like the Deep I understand Archer that. Yeah. But like so the book functioned to me the way that Deep Archer functions for the people who use it. It was a place to go into and explore and be like constantly wowed by levels of fine-grained detail and programming that I'd never seen before and then to step out and like basically forget about it. Like this this book a month from now I will not remember a single plot detail of this book. I barely remember them now, but I will definitely remember like the sort of creepy, funny, interesting feeling of being inside it which I totally enjoyed the whole time and I was never bored. Like you're telling me that you were bored going through this book is fascinating to me because like the one thing I was thanks to the energy of the sentences and the energy of the of the descriptions was I was never ever ever bored. Yeah, but you got to be a little ADD not to be bored by this book because there's nothing pulling you through, right? There's Did nothing... you just diagnose me? <laughs> 
No, I'm. It's just like so. You read this is sort of the first ten pages don't really have anything to do with the next ten pages. She's just sort of like stumbling through this investigation and you know meeting people. Sometimes she's in the offices of Hash Slinger. You know, then she's going to her Krav Maga person. Like they're just not really connected. There's no like narrative thread. You know, even September 11th, and maybe this is intentional, is kind of anticlimactic. It's not like the book. You know, the way we've had a lot of September 11th books that like build up to that moment and then all kinds of stuff happens and then there's you know the the aftermath it's not even really like that like you don't even remember when september 11th happened in this book so a thank god for that that it's not like a big build-up to september 11th but then b i feel like the structure of the book is essentially a parody of or a riff on the sort of classic private dick story where things happen and trails get followed and people come back and provide information but in this one you're right that many of the things just lead off into weirder and weirder like fractal paths yeah but like i was wishing i was reading jim thompson it's funny you should say that because you know there are you know these hard-boiled detective writers who know how to for example use brand names and or who know how to write in a way which is incredibly clipped you know or who know how to make these characters sort of even if they're stock types like incredibly interesting and tragic in their way like what do you think of Maxine like who is she I liked her I think I largely agree with Dan, although I feel like if I read a few more Pynchon books, I may start to agree with you, Hannah, because it's true. I didn't care about the plot and the mystery in this book because at this point I've learned that it is just a shaggy dog story and it's not really going to go anywhere. But I also just enjoy all of the sort of wackiness along the way. It's funny, you were miserable reading this book. This was probably the most pleasurable (laughs) reading experience I had this year, at least reading a novel. I think it's hilarious. I think that I laughed, you know, there's a joke a page. I didn't laugh at all of them because some I, the, the one time I was bored is it is easy to get totally disoriented as you're supposed to be with these books. And in those cases I would sometimes get bored or just frustrated more accurately. So, you know, as a as a sort of small book as a lark as a shaggy dog story, I found it really entertaining as a big book about 9/11 and the internet and New York City. And the 90s, I have mixed feelings about it. So I, I'm sort of interested to go through those different topics and how the, the, the book treats them. Well, so let's start with Maxine, Hannah, as you suggested. So I did really like Maxine. I thought she was a compelling and smart character with just a lot going on. Like I liked her relationship with Horst and how that developed and deepened along the way, much to her surprise. I liked her sort of complicated lust. How did that develop more than like, you know, Veep and her ex-husband? Like it's just he would come in and out and they'd have sex sometimes or like what, how did it develop? Well, because at the beginning of the novel, they're functionally separated and divorced and she finds him mostly exasperating. By the end of the novel, she has come to value him in a real way, to value the things that he brings to her life and the balance that he offers in the midst of this, like, total insanity. And part of it is those couple of hours where she wasn't sure what happened to him after 9-11. But part of it is also just that he is, like, sort of a stolid thing in her life that she finds she can count on in the midst of all this other bullshit that's happening to her. Like, I liked that. Uh, But I also liked that she had this, like, inexplicable, awful, horrific lust for Windust, the trained killer working for some secret government agency. And I liked her feelings towards her kids, and I liked how good she was at her job even though as you say she wasn't driven into this investigation by passion or anything she did care about it and she cared about the guy who got killed in the building across the street and she cared about why people were messing with her and she cared about being right 
And I like a character like that who who knows things and who is not shy about making it clear to the world that she knows them and, and is smart and funny about it. You know, that was pretty convincing. I realized as both of you are talking that one of my problems is this intentional disorientation infuriated me. Like right. even though I understand that I was supposed to be living in Deep Archer and getting lost in corners and sort of not quite following a unified linear plot, I got irritated with that. So I would lose the thread of Maxine and I would forget what Horst was like or what Reg was like. I would just kind of forget who they were because they were each put out in sort of small snippets. But as you now did for me a coherent character description of Maxine, (laughs) I already (laughs) like this book 15% better. So maybe by the end, I would love it. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. But (laughs) it is true that if there are many readers who... If this is the kind of book that sounds on their face like it would annoy them, it will definitely annoy definitely, them. Definitely. Right. Yeah. There's like, if you think you're going to hate this book, you will definitely hate this book. In fact, yeah, I was I was impressed by your defense, Dan, and that was way more than I ever could have said about Maxine. I should say I read the book like two months ago and I've tried to refresh myself. So there's more than one reason that I am... I don't remember the plot that well. But I mostly just don't worry about motivation and it making sense altogether. Like, I think if you come to a book like this and you sort of judge it against the typical rules of a novel, it's just going to be perpetually frustrating. Um, And so there are characters there and they sometimes make sense and then often they don't. I mean, sometimes little people show up out of nowhere, like from behind the radiator, and it's just like, oh, Okay, the guy that from, was kind of funny. The guy from Cosmo.com shows up to drop right. off the next right. clue. So, that, so the guy from Cosmo.com is like basically a joke on plot contrivance, I think, right? right? It's just like Pynchon, whenever he wants to, he needs, he doesn't know how to move the plot forward, he sends over Marvin from Cosmo, <laughs> and, and, and he's like, here's the next plot development. Right. And I but, found that sort of funny. Yeah, but he knows he's doing, like the names, you know, Conkling Speedwell. I made yeah. myself a mm-hmm. list of all the insane Chaz Larden. Vip Epperdu. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what? The the protagonist of Lot 49 is like Oedipa Moss. Right. So this is nothing new. Let's take a quick break to pause for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com, and then we will continue this extremely fun argument. So Audible.com is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Everywhere on the deep web that you want to find audio content, you can find it at Audible.com. You can choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks and listen to them on nearly any device, including the one you're using to listen to us right now. Audible has a special offer for audiobook club listeners. When you sign up for a 30-day free trial membership, you will get one, count them, one free audiobook of your choice. Just visit our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. So what will that free book be? Here at the Audiobook Club, we like to recommend next month's discussion book, which I will now reveal to be The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Audible has it. Uh, it's narrated by David Pichu. And if you sign up using uh, our special URL, you can get all 32 hours and 30 minutes of The Goldfinch narrated to you for free. Now, there's uh, a damn novel, by the that's way. That's not that. <laughs> oh, so you're reading Well, save it for next month, maybe. Yeah. Uh, your membership also includes a free subscription to uh, either The New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try, and please use our URL so Audible knows that you are an audiobook club listener, audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. All right, so. All right, let me go, let me go, let me, because now that I'm sidling up to what Pynchon is, is trying to do, I want to put this out there. So maybe like Maxine's indifference and a sort of general lack of very passionate motivation is supposed to mimic our relationship with the interwebs. Like, 
our just kind of casual acceptance of this thing that's come to take over our lives when at the heart of it is like a horrible conspiracy. But we are not realizing it because we're sort of traipsing from place to place. And, oh, look, another website. Like we are basically living the way Maxine lives this investigation. I'll say sure with the caveat <laughs> that you could have literally said anything about yeah. this book yeah, and, 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 ended it, and ended it, comma, man. And I would have been like, yes, sure. That sounds great. Like, I didn't, fact, I did not necessarily draw, for example, like an anti technology message out of this book. There really? are a lot of things about technology that I, Thomas Pynchon really seems to enjoy. Yeah. I dug this up. I didn't even know it existed before, but he wrote this essay in 1984 at the dawn of what he called the computer age, capital C, capital A. And, so it was in defense of Luddites. I forget what the headline was exactly. But it was also sort of a complication of the whole idea where he talked about how, you know, the original Luddites, or, you know, the guy Ludd um, <laughs> was, was his name, you know, didn't hate, I think it was the sewing machine, but he hated how, you know, it took away jobs from all of these people who previously had them. It was sort of more of a Marxist thing. And so I think that's that's how he felt about technology in 1984. And And I don't know, I think that makes sense for me in terms of how he thinks about it now, which is sometimes it can be great and really amazing. And he seems to, you know, have some fondness for the internet, but he also doesn't trust all of it. And he hates how it's like sort of gentrified. That is one place where I didn't relate to him at all, because this book, in a way that's similar to some of his previous books, it seems to capture like this frontier before it's colonized and made really safe and boring kind of like New York itself is in this book. And I don't know. I don't think the internet is safe and boring and gentrified now. It's still crazy and full of wacko conspiracy theorists like Thomas Pynchon. You know, I'm looking <laughs> I'm looking for that speech by her father. You know? Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah. Can you read that speech? I can't find it right now. Hold on. Hold on I've Let's got it right here. It. It's 422-ish. Yeah, 422, well, and that's not even the end of the book. Right. Okay, so oh, here it is. Yes, yes. Are you talking about the one about the C- how it about was parenthood? conceived in sin? No, I'm talking about the speech where he talks about the internet being conceived in sin. We should say this oh, speech yeah, is, is also from what from Maxine's dad, who is kind of an old guy. Right. Yeah, so, but so, I'm right. taking him as a stand-in Which for Pinchas oh. too. I don't know if I'd... I think he might just be an old crank. So I'm going to read two paragraphs from this section, which is a conversation between Maxine and her dad. The section you're talking about is on 420, Hannah, and it goes, he's talking about the terror of, like, the the Rand Corporation and everyone who created the internet in the Eisenhower years and afterwards. And he goes, yep, and your internet was their invention, this magical convenience that creeps now like a smell through the smallest details of our lives, the shopping, the housework, the homework, the taxes, absorbing our energy, eating up our precious time. And there's no innocence anywhere, never was. It was conceived in sin, the worst possible. As it kept growing, it never stopped carrying in its heart a bitter, cold death wish for the planet. And don't think anything has changed, kid. So do you really think that that's how Thomas Pynchon feels about technology and the internet? The language is so heightened. Heightened. That's a nice way to put it. It's like... He could not possibly be overstating it any more than right. to say, right. you know, carrying okay. in his heart a bitter cold death wish for the planet. <laughs> like, there's no way. I mean, he's way too smart. If he hated the internet that much, he wouldn't phrase it that and way. And he he's... also wouldn't, like, show so much affection for the crazy people who make the internet yeah. in this book. Even, even like, the stupid corrupt ones are still, like, super interesting to him in a way that's just he could not hate 
technology as much as you think he does. So what about those weird Arabs in the bathroom? What's up with that? Like that hash lingers, like when you finally come down to the heart of the sin, it involves Arabs in the bathroom speaking Arabic. I don't think there is a heart of the sin in this book. I don't think, I mean, we never get to the heart of anything in this book, I think. As you guys said, it's like departure. We we never, it's too vast and too ever-changing for us to ever get to the root of anything. Right, and, and I guess... That's how it always is. So he's just teasing the conspiracy theorists. He's just, like, teasing them to yeah. bring them I think that's to his team. But... but you can be a conspiracy theorist and believe that you and Pynchon are on the same side. Like, be one of these deep net people who, you right. know, erases all your cookies and, like, is paranoid that the government is after you. And, like, you think Pynchon is your, you know, spokesman, but he's not. Now, I don't get the impression that he subscribes to any of these conspiracy theories. I think that he just enjoys conspiracy theories and, like, the concept of making them, you know, mm-hmm. and the way they spread and the way they move around. You know, I, I was thinking about this. Like, it's not like he's a 9-11 truther or something. I sort of think of him as, like, he's more like a falser. Like, he's interested in tracking all the the one million different crazy theories that scattered around 9-11 and everything having to do with it. That's interesting to him. But I don't think that he would ally himself with any of them. Nor do I think he necessarily believes that they're all false. I mean, I agree with you. I think he's mostly interested in them for their wackiness. And I think he probably doesn't believe them. But I don't know if he would necessarily rule them out either. He almost never rules anything out. In my head, I was comparing him to the new Dave Eggers book, you know, The Circle. Mm -hmm. Now, The Circle, I was thinking of Pynchon as, like, to the right in terms of, like, who's the most conspiratorial, like, who sees technology as more evil. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe the difference between those two, Eggers clearly has an idea, right? That book is sort of the Orwellian creep of technology. Maybe this book just, like, is more playful. Like, it plays with the idea, but it doesn't land hard on it the way the circle does. Yeah, I think that's totally right. Like, all these theories are spouted, but they're spouted beside other theories about little people behind their radiators and people hallucinating, like, uh, dead people and electrical outlets. And, I mean, the very fact that, like, at the end of the book, the departure is, like, maybe the afterlife or maybe there are dead people down there, but we don't really know whether they're dead people or just, you know, avatars pretending to be victims of 9-11. So I think it's all viewed as possibly right. but uh, And that's where the, like, not, the beanie baby obsession, like he gives you little comic interludes, like right. what's her name with the Z? What's her name who's obsessed with the beanie babies? Verva. So I want to read another section from that same scene between Maxine and her dad, which was a moment at which I really deeply loved this book because... You know, having never read Pynchon before, I thought of him in in my head as, you know, I knew that he loved conspiracy theories and that he was brainy and funny and weird. But I had not really thought of him as like someone who was good at writing moving scenes that might move me in some Mm -hmm. way. But this scene really did. He's she is complaining or sort of feeling bad about the fact that she has this weird relationship with Windust and she thinks that he is redeemable, even though he's almost certainly not redeemable. And her dad says, where are you? I'm at the bottom of 421 going into 422. Mm -hmm. He goes, you were always like this. I kept waiting for you to give it up, let it go, turn as cold as the rest of us, praying all the time you wouldn't. You'd come back from school, history classes, some new nightmare, the Indians, the Holocaust, crimes I hardened my heart against years ago, taught them but didn't feel them so much anymore, and you'd be so angry, passionately hurting your little hands and fists. How could anybody do these things? How could they live with themselves? What was I supposed to say? 
We handed you the tissues and said, it's grown-ups. Some act that way. You don't have to be like them. You can be better. Best we could ever come up with. Pathetic. But you know what? I never found out what we should have said. Think I'm happy about that? And then she talks about how her boys ask the same things. And the scene ends in a very <laughs> sweet way. But, like, that passage crushed me. Oh I my mean, I related God. to it. You know why that passage crushed you? Because have you have kids. waited 422 pages for no. an emotional passage. That's, That's why no. it crushed you. There are others. There I are was other surprised. Oh my God, there's so few that, like... and far between. There's so few and far between. Sure, but when they hit, boy, do they hit. Well, because you're like starving there. You're like, also okay. Also because they're good, Hannah. That's not that good. It's like, okay. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, it's fine. It's all right. So let's talk about the jokes. I really loved the laugh lines in this book. There's that bit where Maxine talks about how she loves the Knicks because she's fascinated by Latrell Sprewell because mm-hmm. Homer strangling Bart is not interesting, but when Bart strangles Homer, that's interesting. <laughs> that was good. Or like the fact that there's an entire plot device revolving around the horrible stench of the old 930 Club in Washington, D.C., or, or that incredible description of Ikea when there's just like a paragraph where they just, she's talking about how one time they went to Ikea and Pynchon describes Ikea so amazingly as this like fractal hellish netherworld where they direct you to the exit but you never actually reach it that made me like wish that he just like wrote the occasional like Times Magazine feature about something like I would totally read that but this book definitely like made me laugh a lot like literally laugh out loud many times like or the fact that there's a strip club called Joie de Bivre Joie de Bivre (laughs) And or when someone goes, well, you know what Susan Sontag says, and Maxine goes, I like the streak. I think I'll keep it. Wait, can we just point out that Hannah has been laughing hysterically? Okay, on the those other are end? good. I you're thought right, you said it right. wasn't funny. No, no, you're right. Maybe you're right. my I was flipping through the book today, and I found that I highlighted this passage, and it is of no significance whatsoever. I think the best passages of, in this book are both funny and touching, and I could give example of that. But what I found instead was his tale of the, you know, it's like a 1993 movie or something called Scooby Goes Latin. I don't know if you guys remember <laughs> remember this, but it's it's a tale in which, like, Scooby is down in Colombia, and he teams up with all of these Colombian kids, and they're trying to take down this drug cartel guy who's in Medellin who is pretending to be a ghost. And then it's all just a set a setup for this line at the end where he says, and I would have got away with it, too, if it hadn't been for those Medellin kids. <laughs> and come on. Like, it's, it's, you know, puns are not the highest form of humor, but, like, he is He is the master. highest form he of punter. He is the most high-wire punter <laughs> right. I've ever encountered. I liked all the movies in this, all the biopics that Horace the is always watching. The golf biopics I didn't totally get, I have to say. Oh, I just, maybe love, I, was... I just love the idea that there were these, that there's a whole cottage industry of biopics in this alternate universe, like the Anton Chekhov story starring right. Edward Norton with Peter Sarsgaard as Stanislavski. That's great. So it seems to me, Hannah, that one of the issues are that you did find things that you liked in this book, but you were so overwhelmed with annoyance at its sort of essential guiding principle of aimlessness that you couldn't enjoy those things the way you might have otherwise in a different book. Yeah, because everything you guys said is really funny. I mean, right. <laughs> those are really good. And I might have given up on it too early. Like, I might have skipped over. Like, I got so so sort of irritated because I couldn't follow what was going on. Right. Like, then you miss a lot. Right. That's right. like an anal mm-hmm. way to approach this book, because if well, you're that's not... not going to let yourself just kind of wander a little bit. And maybe I would have been more patient to wander if there weren't 500 pages to wander through. But if you're not going to let yourself wander, like, you know, you're going to miss the charms of the book. I wouldn't describe that as a, like a failing necessarily. That is just this was not the book for you at this point in time. Yeah, like but... the normal writing. Like I'm, I'm just now remembering his, his initial description of Reg. Is his name Reg Dispard? 
Mm-hmm. Have you ever met anyone with any single name of anyone in this book except no. Maxine? Maybe no. Sean, her analyst. <laughs> Sean. Sean. Yeah. <laughs> I love Sean. Yeah. Couple years, in fact, Reg Despard looked considerably hammered at by the interval. I, I don't even know, like, that gra- grammar is really weird. He's a documentary guy who began as a movie pirate back in the 90s, going into matinees with a barred camcorder to tape first-run features off the screen, from which he then duped cassettes that he sold on the street for a dollar, two sometimes if he thought he could get it, often turning a profit before the movie was through before its opening weekend. And then he becomes like a legit documentary filmmaker who people hire because they just someone yeah, loved his funny. aesthetic in the way he framed a screen as he was pirating a movie. Maybe this is like a girl-boy thing. Like He describes people and, and explains people by the things they do. Right. Like there's nothing internal in this book at all. Like even the descriptions of Maxine are descriptions through conversation or dialogue or through something she does as she's speaking to her her kids. Like nothing is internal. It's all that's very hard boiled, though. I mean, that is I've never read a hard boiled mystery where someone is like, then he felt sad. Right. Like there's that's not the point of a hard boiled mystery. Right. Right. Does it throw you maybe that the main character, the hard-boiled P.I., is a woman with kids who in a, a different book would be described in very specifically like emotional or traditionally female terms? I mean, do you think that that, that might be the problem? Because I was also I was reading Goldfinch kind of simultaneously. And mm-hmm. it is, you know, precisely the opposite of this book. Like it right. begins with the most like wrenching internal description you can possibly imagine. Right. right. Um, right. And there's also sort of a mother in it and a child. And it's like it's just so radically different in its approach to humanity than this book that you know maybe that's that did me wrong. I do want to talk briefly about Thomas Pynchon, 76-year-old dude who somehow just knows more about modern day New York than I do or maybe than any of us do. Like I mean I guess it's not Even... modern day, it's 2001 New York, but yeah. he there was not a single pop culture reference whether real or imagined in this book where I was like, oh, that's an old man talking. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He just like knows. I don't know if he has like a great research staff or is he he just really paying a lot of attention. But like this passage on page 302, which is a description of a 1999 themed party that they have here in 2001 where they were already feeling nostalgia for the pre-bubble era. But uh, so it's all these things that are going on in this party. The, the Soviet era sound system looted from a failed arena somewhere in Eastern Europe is also blasting Blink-182, Echo and the Bunnymen, Bare Naked Ladies, Bone Thugs and Harmony, and other sentimental oldies, while vintage stock quotations from the boom years NASDAQ crawl along a ticker display on a freeze running the full perimeter of the ballroom. Beneath giant 4 by 6 meter LED screens onto which bloom and fade loops of historical highlights, like Bill Clinton's grand jury testimony... Uh, The other Bill, Gates, getting a pie in the face in Belgium. The announcement trailer for Halo, clips from the Dilbert animated TV series, the first season of SpongeBob, Roman Coppola's Boo.com commercials, Monica Lewinsky hosting Saturday Night Live, Susan Lucci finally winning a daytime Emmy for Erica Kane. Like, these are right. And these are not things that you could necessarily Google now as you're writing this book. So, like, he was paying attention in 1999, and he is paying attention now in ways that are just amazing to me. And so... And you don't find that to be just like an insane overload of pop culture and Of course it's an insane like, overload of yeah, pop culture. Yeah, but it just but gives me a headache. Itself, like, ugh, yeah. But I think actually that's a really key scene because this book is full of nostalgia for this pre-9-11 time of the late 90s. 
But you also, within that nostalgia that we might feel, you also get this depiction of, you know, the dot-com nostalgia for their, like, pre-bubble time, which appears totally ridiculous to us. And so I don't think that Pynchon always answers perfectly well every criticism that can be lobbed against him, but he's clearly aware of them and can acknowledge them in very funny ways, like this this scene. And I'm interested as well in why he chose this time. Like, there are two very specifically relevant things about choosing the year 2001 to set your New York novel, and one of them, obviously, is 9-11, and we've talked about that a little, that it, for me, it serves as, like, a locus of a million conspiracy theories, and so it's a useful hinge to sort of have this novel turnaround. But then the other is the dot-com collapse, which it seems to me, as someone who moved to New York just shortly after the events of this book... Like, I remember the dot-com collapse very clearly. Like, it seems very well turned to me. Like, this sense of this amazing thing built on air that then somehow collapsed. Uh, And I have very vivid memories of me and my friends in print media and the schadenfreude we felt about all our friends from college who'd become millionaires. But then they lost their millions. I mean, it was very short-lived because it turned out they all became millionaires again. But, like, this entire world is just very convincingly turned out to me. Though I don't think this is like a definitive chronicle of this era, I do think it's an extremely fascinating and vivid portrait of an era that I would never have imagined Thomas Pynchon to have been paying attention to at all. Well, he is pretty good on people facing space, like in Deep Archer. Like, I do like the scenes when Maxine walks into empty offices. Like, there's not really a lot of mood in this book, but he does, you know, he puts the person in the place where there's one person sitting in the office and they're dismantling the office, and you kind of get what he's trying to say. And again, he is paying attention. He sees what that looks like, and he's giving you what that looks like, and, and by extension, feels like. So can we talk a little bit about what Deep Archer means? Like, what is the significance? What is Deep Archer a metaphor for? I think it is a metaphor for nearly everything. What do you yeah, think, Forrest? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's I so think easy to answer funny. questions about this book because the answer is always whatever. Everything, whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah I mean, so all of Pynchon's books have this great unknown that you know, all these connections that the characters are sort of struggling to put together and some secret that may or may not be at the bottom of everything. I was looking at this passage from um, Trying of Lot 49 that sums it up. Basically, it says that Oedipa is looking for, quote, another mode of meaning behind the obvious or none. And I think that that is something that's in every book, but this book is in some ways more accessible because it's this very literal, if not physical thing that just represents all the great mysteries that may or may not really be there and have great truth in them. Right. So it might just be like she sucked into a video game the way other people play like Angry Birds or whatever and and have no meaning at all. Right. It's the deep web. It's also Departure, which is, you know, like a pun on escapism, I think, which is a whole other aspect of it. Do you guys think Thomas Pynchon likes living in New York? Yes. He couldn't live anywhere else. Like, he's just a creature of New York. He but probably didn't he likes live for, like, until, like, the I, last couple decades or something. I feel like he the rumor about him was always that he, like, lived in Southern California or Mexico in or Mexico something. Mexico for a while. And yeah. then he married his literary agent and, I think, moved to New York. But was he always a creature of New York? I mean, he was born in Long I, Island. Yeah. I mean, I, so we sort of questioned that on the fact that he's lived other places. But I also totally agree with you because his sort of sensibility is so New York. And I think he has a total love-hate relationship with it, the way that most New Yorkers have yeah. a love-hate relationship with I loved, New York and with everything. I love that video game that her kids are playing 
where you just get to like cleanly execute the annoying people of New York, like right. the woman at Fairway right. who's eating the grapes. Yeah. Like, could you imagine if someone actually made that game? It would be unbelievably popular, but only in New York. And their defense of it was pretty great. Like, their defense of why it wasn't actually violent. Yeah. Because they turned off the blood splatter. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Can we read the Thanksgiving scene, which was one of my favorite scenes in the book? And yeah. also, I guess you guys, um, it was interesting to me that 9-11 brushed by like nothing for you guys. Well, for a long time, I was wondering whether 9-11 was going to happen at all because this w- book exists in this weird place that's totally historical. And also, there are weird things that never actually existed in it. Right. Like um, the Anton Chekhov story yeah. starring Peter which, uh, which I mean, there's tons of really heavy foreshadowing in, in the book, but it also that did put a little bit of suspense back in it for mm-hmm. me and made me sort of wish that it wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I had like nightmares reading uh, just like a couple nights when... I was getting towards the end of the book. You wow. guys, so you guys didn't have like any emotional connection to the. I'm not surprised because I don't. To the to the 9/11 part specifically. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I was worried. About, I was actually pretty worried about Horst. Right. Uh, but yeah. no, like it was dealt with in a way that to me was like the right way to deal with it in a book, which is like we all know this thing happened and it totally sucked. Let's like get past it as quickly as we can. And then mm-hmm. his description of the aftermath in New York was like very right on like the way that sort of like the connection to the tragedy changed as you migrated north of 14th street Mm -hmm. and the way the police were like despite everything you wanted to like love the police because of what they suffered but they were like extra super assholes in the months following 9-11 and like uh, that all seemed right on to me but the actual event was not like emotionally crushing to me yeah but sorry read the thing no i agree that all of that was very vivid and was something I wasn't really familiar with as somebody who did mostly experience it through the media but anyways the parts about new york after 9-11 were my favorite and were the parts that he seemed to have the most connection to. And so there's this part where it's Thanksgiving and they're all going to get a turkey. What page um, are you on? In line. It's on page 381. Oh, the line. Oh, yes, the line. Right. Yes. So I think, you know, it's the morning of and they've put it off, of course. And then so this guy is he's trying to cut ahead in the line, which is not allowed. He says, I have a house of children to feed. But he's interrupted by a voice someplace over by the loading dock hollering, hey, asshole. And here cannonballing over the heads of the crowd comes a frozen turkey, hits the bothersome yup square in the head, knocking him flat and bouncing off his head into the hands of Maxine, who stands blinking at it like Betty Davis at some baby with whom she must unexpectedly share the brown. <laughs> she hands the object to the lady behind her. This is yours, I guess. What, after it touched him? Thanks anyway. I'll take it, says the guy behind her. As the line creeps forward, everybody makes sure to step on, not over, the fallen line jumper. Nice to see the old town getting back to normal, ain't it? And that was just a great scene of, of New Yorkers coming like together by hating each other. Ten different delightful is... things in that. Yeah, passage. so many different things. Yeah, but yeah. it's like a cartoon. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there are references to like Looney Tunes in these books, and I think that's a, an influence. Yes. This for, is a Looney Tunes cartoon moment. Right. It's a Looney Tunes book in many ways. So, did we at least help you to contextualize your hate? Yeah, on, uh, you really did. And I'm I'm trying to think like if I like well, how could I get over? Because there's clearly gems in here. So how could one get over oneself? Like you're going to ask me if I would recommend this book. Yeah. And I can't quite recommend this book. On the other hand, you guys are right. There are so many gems in here that you just have to get over yourself. A like, great way to experience this book is to listen to a podcast where people just tell you a lot of that. Well, you know, I just had another idea. Like, <laughs> why? what if you turned it into like a bathroom book so you could read it a few pages at a time without, you know, forcing yourself to experience it as a full novel? 
that that's a might great work. idea. And so that's you would come across idea. like you right. would come across like gems. You know, you would read it like ten pages at a time, and you would laugh out loud. But you would read it in this disconnected way, and that would be okay. Like when a character shows up again 150 pages later, when you're reading as a novel, you get sidetracked by being like, oh, God, who's who this was guy? that? And then who I go was back. It? Why does exactly. he matter? But in fact, it doesn't matter. Right. And if you read it as a bathroom book, it allows you to let go of the belief that maybe it does matter. You can just be like, oh, here's this character. Right. Let's see what he does. Okay. So you recommend it as a bathroom book. Yes, like, I un- recommend it as Uncle, a <laughs> Uncle Tom Pynchon's bathroom reader. Exactly. I love it. I love it. Okay. Forrest, recommend? I mean, I totally recommend it as a bathroom book. I think, <laughs> I mean, so no, 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 but I, this is what I'm saying. That like half of me is just like, oh, I enjoy Thomas Pynchon like I enjoy Tom Robbins or at least did back in high school and college. And so there's always that, which will make me enjoy reading him, but. I think, you know, that's not the only thing he's trying to do. And so I also thought it was sort of half successful as a treatment of the Internet and maybe only a third successful as a treatment of 9-11 and, you know, very successful as a treatment of New York. I really liked it a lot and I would totally recommend it. I also think it's entirely possible that if I read more Thomas Pynchon books, I would like reach a state of diminishing returns as yeah, they, totally. as I got more familiar with his techniques and as he moved further away from my own experience like I can totally see them becoming less and less interesting to me oh that's another thing I wanted to say is although I, I have not yet tested this out totally is that I think this is actually Hannah you might disagree but a great Thomas Pynchon book to start with because of course it's full of esoterica but the esoterica is from the 1990s and it's about the internet and stuff whereas you know with gravity's rainbow it's about rocket science which right, is something right. no one understands right. so were references to world you know 1940s pop culture right and so uh, it was easier for me to connect with and like the language. references are, are are sort of possible for a wide range of ages in this book like, like right. people yeah. of many ages could sort of grasp what he's talking about you know right and i i agree with you Forrest. i think that this is a great book for people to figure out whether they would ever like a Thomas Pinchot right. book. And if you love this book, then go read Gravity's right. Rainbow. Right. Not in the bathroom. Or, or don't. Or don't. Right. Or just be happy with this. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys for this discussion. Hannah, thank you for leading us off with your hate. That really helped. <laughs> so a program note. In our next audiobook club, we are discussing The Gold Finch, Donna Tartt's big blockbuster about an orphan teenager in New York and his lifelong connection to a mysterious painting. We've got a great conversation between Donna Tart and her editor at the Slate Book Review. Please check that out. Read or listen to the book and then join us on December 6th for the next audiobook club. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audiobook club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slate ABC. And please subscribe to the podcast in iTunes because that helps other people discover the show. If you search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store, you'll find it. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Hannah Rosen and Forrest Wickman, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.